Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to the author of Hacking the Electorate, How Campaigns Perceive Voters. The author of the book is Eitan Hirsch. The book is published by Cambridge University Press this year. I really hope that you enjoy the interview that I did today with Eitan. Welcome back to the podcast. Again, my name is Heath Brown, and I have the real pleasure to talk to the author of Hacking the Electorate, How Campaigns Perceive Voters. Eitan Hirsch, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to have read the book. It's a pleasure to have you on. I've been looking forward to talking. I've At APSA this year, a, a couple of people said, when are you going to have Eitan Hirsch on to talk about his book? And so I said, this is something that I'll put on my fall calendar, and, and it's been great to be able to set this up. So let's let's talk about your, your very interesting book. But before we do, let's talk a little bit more about yourself. So who are you? Where, where are you now? Maybe you could just give us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, okay. Well, I'm now uh, in starting my fifth year on the faculty at Yale uh, in New Haven. Uh, from there, I, I came from there from Harvard where I did my graduate work. And uh, what else can I tell you? I'm from Providence, Rhode Island, so I haven't ventured too far out of New England. And um, I'm glad to be here talking to you. Yeah, no, it's 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 great to have you on. Let's let's get to the book. And you know, it occurred to me in reading this that there's there's been a lot written about get out the vote and voter contact. Uh, we had just, I guess it was two years ago, Lisa Garcia Bedola on the podcast when her book with Michelle Michelson came out. And they were writing about the effectiveness of voter targeting. Your focus is different in this book. Uh, it's at the elite level of GOTV. I wonder if we could just start by, you know, kind of big picture. Why, why is it important to understand things from this vantage point? Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. I mean, a lot of the work done on campaign strategy, when you think about things like, uh, you know, door-to-door canvassing and phone calls and direct mail, uh, political scientists have studied those things a lot. But what they've really focused on is the effectiveness of those things, what works, what doesn't work. Um, in the same way, a campaign might want to itself know, you know, what strategies are effective. But as a political scientist, you know, my, my main interest is not in you know, helping any campaign, but understanding how parties and campaigns establish relationships with voters, how they mobilize, how they engage with the electorate. And for those kinds of questions, it's, you know, the, the interesting question is not, is not how effective some, some strategy is, but what strategies are campaigns actually doing? What, you know, what exactly are they doing? Why are they doing it? Um, and you mentioned it's an, it's an elite level argument, and that's, that's true in so much as the organizations, obviously, that engage with the electorate um, are are real organizations. They're uh, large infrastructures like, you know, presidential campaigns. They have thousands of employees. They have um, big networks of state parties. And, and, of course, you have the national parties. And you have a lot of coordination among different groups. Um, as I talk about in the book, you have a lot of shared data resources and shared strategies. Um, and so I think it's important for us to understand what the strategy is, right? Not how effective it is, but what is it? What are these folks doing? Now, you write in the book that you, you quote, you look under the hood of campaign databases in order to write the book. So in, in real practical terms, what did this mean for how you wrote the book? And and in, in maybe describing that, you can talk a little bit about who you partnered with to write the book. Sure. So, you know, if you imagine um, a journalist uh, going to a campaign manager or, or a campaign 
data strategist or something like this and asking about what they do, you know, they might tell the, the reporter, oh, you know, here's what we do. We use the data to do this. Um, but one of the nice things about um, being a, a political scientist who engages with data all the time is that I could ask the same questions and then say, hey, actually, can you just show me your data? Can you just show me what you're doing? And I'd like to see it. Uh, and, and over time, while I was writing this book, started in graduate school as a dissertation and continued the book, I developed relationships with individuals, uh, data scientists who work for campaigns, and with uh, organizations, um, a big data firm called Catalyst, which um, um, which a lot of political scientists know, now know about, um, with Democratic Party, with a company called NGP Van. And through these partnerships, I was able to see voters the way that campaigns see voters. And that's kind of what I mean by under the hood. We have an image of voters that we might get from political science surveys uh, or from, you know, information like from the census. But campaigns have their own way of viewing voters. And what I wanted to see in, in, in studying strategy was how do campaigns think about voters? How do they see them? The subtitle of the book is How Campaigns Perceive Voters, right? Because some of the most interesting um, lessons about campaign strategy that I've learned from, from the, in writing the book is about the, the sort of odd way that campaigns do look at voters. They see voters differently than we see voters by, say, looking at in a public opinion survey. Now, one of the research strategies you use in the book is the is to take advantage of the the interstate differences in laws regarding the collection of public information that that campaigns can use to target voters. So, uh, first, how are these laws different? And and second, how does this open an analytical method for your research? Sure. So, Right. When looking at the campaign databases, one thing that becomes immediately apparent and really important is that public records play a really central role in campaigns' perceptions of voters. Right? We don't have survey responses for every voter in the electorate. What campaigns have is uh, a compilation of public records, and those public records vary across state. So that's kind of what makes this book um, as much a book about public policy as about campaign strategy, because what the story is really here is that uh, state governments and the federal government make laws about data collection, and those laws have very real and important consequences for how campaigns mobilize voters. So um, states vary, for example, in uh, the kinds of data they collect on the voter registration system. Some states uh, ask voters to register with a party affiliation. Some voters, um, some states, when a voter participates in a primary, uh, the state records whether that primary was a Democratic primary or Republican one. Some states list voters, um, require voters to list their race when they register to vote. And so there's a whole separate story about why those laws exist to begin with. But from the campaign's perspective, they're kind of handed a voter file, and some of those voter files have, you know, race on the, on the voter file for every voter, and some don't. And um, so one strategy I used to kind of understand, uh, to show how, how strategies and outcomes are affected by the ways campaigns perceive voters in their own databases was to say, okay, well, let's take two states like uh, North Carolina and Virginia, both swing states in 2012. One state, North Carolina, every voter is listed with their race. The other state, Virginia, no voters are listed with their race. 
And let's see how a campaign like the Obama campaign, who is engaging voters in both those states, how they pursue a different strategy, whether the uh, whether the state provides them with race or not. And so, you know, what I show in the book in that particular case is that, you know, the Obama campaign, for example, is really engaged in both those states, but they engage with a really different kind of voter in Virginia and in North Carolina. In North Carolina, first of all, they focused a lot more on race than they did in Virginia. And they did that because they could. They had information about every voter's race. The other thing they did is that they focused more on individuals and less on geography. So in Virginia, where voters are not listed by their race, uh, they focused mostly on African-American voters who live in uh, homogenous black neighborhoods. In North Carolina, they didn't have to do that because um, because they had for every individual voter, no matter where they lived, a good indicator of their race. Um, so, you know, that's that's the sense in which a policy uh, about, you know, in this case, voter registration data collection could affect the strategy and indeed affect which voters actually show up to the polls. Um, and, you know, th- th- that's just one example. I mean, states vary in the information that you can FOIA uh, from the state agencies about, for example, which, uh, which voters have teaching licenses or hunting licenses or physicians licenses. Um, all of the public records, um, they vary by geography, by jurisdiction. And what I tried to do is is um, exploit those variations to understand from the campaign's perspective how these variations affect how campaigns see the electorate and therefore what they what they do. Um, and you know, I think as to, your, to the end of your question, you know, as uh, it's easier for us political scientists to to leverage public records, uh, individual level records that have never been used before, we can find these kinds of new opportunities to to look at how the public records vary um, across the country um, and in different places and at different times to understand their effects on elite or mass behavior. Now, we all probably know something about uh, redistricting and and redistricting is redistricting is not done in a random fashion it's it's done in a very purposeful stra- uh fashion is is the 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 laws that that oversee this public information collection um uh simply random is it is it something that just uh it just so happens that North Carolina collects uh race data and Virginia doesn't or is there a larger story to be told about the 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 purpose of this for those making policy or or the the political parties that have influence over those decisions. Okay, that's a great question. Um, there are two there are two answers. That, there are two ways I think about this. Uh, one answer, which I talk a lot about in the book, is that states sometimes pass data laws because they have political ramifications. In other words, a state might uh, seek to collect certain data about voters because um, not because there's an, an administrative need to collect that data, but because there's a, a political need. Um, so I go through some examples of states passing laws about the collection of race data or the collection of partisanship data from voters in which I've uncovered evidence that state legislators state legislators in proposing these laws had in mind um, a political rationale. In other words, 
there's in some cases no reason why a state needs to collect race data or part or, or collect party affiliation data. Um, and yet state legislators were saying, you know, we should collect these data because they're good for our campaign databases. They're good for uh, the political parties trying to engage the electorate. Um, so that's, I think, a pretty interesting story about why some states have data while other states don't. The other like more boring, I guess, answer is that, you know, some states, uh, for example, with the partisanship data, some states are, have open primaries versus closed primaries. And so if you have a closed primary, meaning if you need to restrict participation in primary elections to party affiliates, then the, then the state has uh, a reason to want to collect party information from voters. Um, uh, so some of this comes from sensible administrative policy, although, you know, the states really can take different views about um, they can you you could separate out the decision to collect certain information from a state and the and the rationale for distributing that information to political parties. Uh, one thing that I thought was pretty interesting um, is that there have been a number of attempts, mostly by um, libertarian type Republicans, to uh, enable voters to register to vote um, without having their information. Uh, transferred to the political parties. In other words, the, you know, a, a Republican legislator passed a law saying, you know, you should be able to participate in elections without your information being, you know, handed off to all the political organizations that want to contact you. Um, but uh, the mainstream party affiliates in the state legislatures have have prevented those laws from going to effect because, you know, they see the they see the political benefits of of data collection. Um, you know, in, in making this argument, I, I, I don't want to um, make the case necessarily that um, the data being collected for the purposes of, of helping parties is, is necessarily a bad thing. Um, the parties face a daunting task in, in needing to recruit voters and trying to figure out who their supporters might be, and data helps. Um, but the, I think the interesting normative question, the interesting ethical question is how much the public should um, be subsidizing the information gathering process of the political parties by um, having the government collect lots of data that really isn't done in service to the political parties. Now, for much of the book, and you develop this theory that you describe as perceived the perceived voter model theory, and you're, you're very specific about being focused on the perception of voters, not not actual voters. So, do campaigns accurately perceive voters? Do do campaigns possess reliable voter data when it comes down to it? You know, it, it really depends on the kind of voter data. Um, when you think about something like, do they accurately perceive a voter's age and gender? They do, because it's not that hard to figure that out. Uh, you know, age is almost always a public record in, in these states, and gender, even when it's not a public record, is pretty easy to decipher for someone's name. So, you know, if, if a campaign comes to me and to my door, they probably will likely know my gender and my age, or they'll perceive that accurately. But, you know, for a lot of things that campaigns care about, their perceptions are really inaccurate. Now, it happens that sometimes our own perceptions of ourselves are pretty inaccurate, too. So you think, for example, of, of what it means to be persuadable. So you imagine what we have in mind, we think about a persuadable voter is someone who could legitimately change their opinion about a candidate or an issue, given a treatment given that a campaign engages with that voter and tries to persuade them, convince them, the voter might actually move their opinion. Now, uh, 
it's difficult to for voters to make a self-assessment of that. Um, uh, as we know, a lot of people who, for example, identify as as independents are really not independent. Um, and a voter who thinks of themselves as persuadable might not actually be persuadable. Voters have their own perceptions. And then we have some objective perceptions, of objective measures, we might think of what it means to be persuadable or treatment responsive to a persuasion message. And then we have what campaigns have, which is almost no information that alerts them to which voters are persuadable. So you can think of a whole number of characteristics, uh, and especially it's the characteristics that have, uh, are, are, you know, are, are, are about, about a voter's opinion or a voter's psychological state about which campaigns have very, very poor perceptions of voters. And that's not because the campaigns are bad at what they do. It's because it's a really hard thing to do to figure out which voter might be persuadable or to figure out which voter might take this position on a particular issue when there's nothing really in the public record or in commercial databases that alert the campaign to uh, that issue position. Now, you offer some policy recommendations towards the end of the book um, without having to go into each one of them. Uh, what are you recommending? What are some of the, the primary recommendations that you come to? So I would say that the, um, the overarching theme of the, the book's conclusion is that um, is to alert the reader and to, to alert uh, interested parties that there is this really important connection between public policy about data and what campaigns are doing. That, you know, we have to get rid of this image of campaigns being uh, these 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 highly sophisticated organizations that do top secret stuff and have all sorts of data. Well, what they really have is compilations of public records and then models built off those public records. And as I show in the book, changes in policy, differences across states over time about what information is collected really does affect how political parties and campaigns engage with the electorate. And so just in terms of the overarching theme of the policy recommendations, it's that A, we need to be aware of those policy changes. Um, and so when state legislatures pass laws uh, or amendments to their FOIA law or amendments to their voter registration laws, um, we kind of have to, that has to, have to raise a bit of a red flag for observers saying, uh, maybe this data law is going to have ramifications in the political world that we weren't previously thinking about. Um, and more specifically, I want to point out that there is a, often a conflict of interest, that there might be an administrative rationale for collecting some data uh, from the public, and there's also a political, uh, a, a political benefit for collecting that data. And, you know, sometimes uh, politicians have too much of the political, uh, the political incentive in mind, and so um, I give a couple of policy recommendations recommendations to, to decouple the political and administrative incentives for public data questions. The book is Hacking the Electorate, How Campaigns Receive Voters, published this year by Cambridge University Press. The author is Eitan Hirsch. Eitan, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you for having me.